0: Continuing our study through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians this morning, the second half of chapter six. But before we hear God's word, let's go to Him once more in prayer. Join your hearts to mine, please. Our dear Lord, our gracious Father. Give in our hearts, give us the desire that we would love your law. May it indeed be our meditation all day long. Blessed are you, Lord, O Lord whose love is revealed in your Son, whose love is the delight of all life and whose word we love as the light of life. We pray, Father, pour out on us your spirit as we hear now your word, as we hear from you. That uh, that in meditating upon them, our hearts might be illumined, our lives filled with peace and joy flowing into grateful obedience. We ask all these things, Lord, be with us. Speak to us, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, I'll read to the end of the chapter. Please give your full attention. This is God's word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. May the Lord add his blessing to his word this time. Well, in case you haven't noticed, uh, we in this culture love slogans. We love catchphrases. But it isn't new or unique to our culture. Uh, some of the catchphrases and slogans that we hear and we um, like to say are silly or funny. Um, some others are more meaningful. And there are some that are pregnant with a particular venom that shakes the fist in the face of God. I suppose it's been quite some time now, um, quite a long time ago, that the saying and idea was championed by some that says this, and I'm sure you'll recognize, recognize it. It's my body, and I can do whatever I want with it. No one can tell me otherwise. You'll recognize this as a slogan trying to justify the killing of precious unborn human lives. But the problem with this slogan and many others like it, is that it's loaded with lying language. Lying language, why? Because it's really not what is in view. It's not their body. It's someone else's body. And sometimes this slogan and this kind of sentiment is used in opposition to the traditional mores regarding ethics. But we see from our text this morning that for the church, for the church of Jesus Christ, this can never be a slogan that we imbibe or that we repeat. We see a number of slogans and corrections in our text this morning, uh, verses 12 to 20. We see a number of slogans in this passage, and we see that the main point of this text is that because we are bought with the blood of Christ and we are united to Him, then we are to flee from sexual immorality. We are to glorify God in our bodies. Paul makes this point in a number of ways as we see the way that this section is constructed I doubt that we'll be able to get through the whole thing this morning, but this is how it kind of breaks apart. How does Paul do this? He does this by showing them the wrong grounding uh, that they were uh, planting themselves in, the wrong worldview in verses 12 to 14. And then he does so by making a request to remember in verses 15 and 16. And then he shows the radical results of what they were doing in verses 17 to 18. And then finally he reminds them, he shows them the redemption price that was paid for them. So first, Paul begins by what? By showing them the wrong grounding that they had. Paul reveals to them the practice and justification for it was, in fact, an immature expression of Christian liberty, right? What they were saying, what they were trying to do with these slogans. He corrects them. And once again, he points out to them, he shows to them the instability, the ground which they, they, on which they stood. And that indeed was an immature expression of Christian liberty. Right? Again, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but, not, but I will be, not be enslaved by anything. Right? And so we see here, this is a slogan that they're using. All things are lawful for me. We see it twice here in this verse. We see it in chapter 10, verse 23, twice again. And this indeed was something that was going around, a catchphrase, a motto, a slogan. And it's possibly based on something that Paul had taught, that Paul had said himself. But in the, 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 the context of the Corinthian church, they were using it out of context. Because Paul's teaching had a specific context. And it's probably what it comes from is his interaction with the Jewish legalism that he encountered elsewhere. And they'd likely heard of this conflict in Paul's correction. And they distorted this slogan. How are we to understand this? All things are lawful for me. When we understand it, when we understand that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. And when we understand how we are justified, that's the context that we are to understand this. And therefore, what does that mean? That we are now free to obey and to enjoy the good things that come by his gracious hand. Does Paul really mean here that Christians are now lawless? That Christians are believers are are anarchists? That they are free from all rules? That seems to be what some of these Corinthians were thinking. It seems to be what Paul is addressing. It's what they were thinking and doing. But what's Paul's point here? It is that it's the, it's the work of Christ. It frees us from legalistic justification. That's what this slogan means and what it comes from. That's the context. The work of Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection frees us. From this self-justification that he was encountering, this Jewish legalism with which he was contending. God created all things good. And therefore, dietary restrictions had been eliminated. Remember in Acts, and Peter is given a vision of this this, this, this blanket, as it were, coming down with all kinds of food on it. He says, I will not eat. They were unkosher foods according to the Old Testament dietary restrictions. And God says, call nothing unclean that I have made. Right? And so these Christians aren't prohibited from certain kinds of foods. And it was the great theologian, uh, Aurelius Augustine, who was led to say regarding this, regarding the Christian ethic, he said, love God and do what you will. Right? Love God and do what you will. But you've got to have both, right? You've got to have both. You can't just do what you will. You first must love God. And that will inform everything that you do. It's in that light and understanding that we can say, indeed, all things are permissible for me. And Paul did comment on this elsewhere in his writings. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, when he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Right? And we have to realize too that uh, uh, what, what, what's, what's seminal behind this, what's imperative, is our desire and our motivation. Because in Corinth, some were justifying their sinful actions by this distorted slogan um, from the Apostle Paul. And they based, they grounded their thinking in, once again, their old pagan worldview, their old pagan way of thinking. For them, it meant, I can do anything, even as a believer. I can do anything that I want. And Paul corrects them, telling them, but not all things are helpful. Right? I can, all things are lawful me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Because it's important that we don't use our freedom as a pretext for sinning, as an opportunity for the flesh, as he has said elsewhere. For idolatry, as many have done, as many do, and as many in Corinth here did. What's needed? What's needed is wisdom, it's discipline, it's self-control, it's circumspection. All aided and driven, guided by the Holy Spirit and the maturity that comes as he sanctifies us over time. All these are needed. Because if not, surely bondage and idolatry and the flaunting, freedom-covering sin threatens us. May we always be aware of the danger of our own blindness. In the self-deception of our own hearts as we analyze these things and we live our lives in this world. And that's what Paul gets at when he says in that second part of that, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Why is that? Why will he not be enslaved? It's because he is a slave to his king and to his redeemer. He is a bondservant to Jesus Christ. And so Paul and we, we must refuse to allow ourselves to be mastered by anything. We must fight in the Spirit to maintain our affections on Jesus Christ alone. And indeed, if anything fights for that affection, it must be eliminated from our lives. Christ will have no, uh, he will not share our affection with anything. He is our master. We cannot play around and try to rationalize our sins or to justify our sins by virtue of our freedom. It's been well put by a friend of mine. He says, Paul was free from Jewish legalism because he was a servant of Christ. And though all things are permissible, Paul will not be bound by anything he is free to do. Right? Very well put. Did you hear it? It He says, all things are permissible, but he will not be bound by anything that he is free to do. That's what Paul is saying here. It's exactly what happened in Corinth. Corinth. That's the bondage of immature liberty. This is what was going on. And we come to another slogan in verse 13. Another slogan that was being thrown around and used in Corinth. And it says this in verse 13. For uh, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The The body is not meant for sexual immorality. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And as we look at this passage, as I was studying this passage... I found it difficult to determine where the quotation marks close, right? As you may know, it's, uh, in, there are no quotation marks in Greek. Um, and as I continued to study, I found that many better, uh, far better exegetes than me found it difficult um, to determine where to close the quote as well. Um, again, quotations in Greek, are set off by capitalizing the first word of the quotation, so You know when it begins. So we're not really sure if the quote should close as it is in our English standard version after the word food, or should it close after at the end of that sentence? It's really not that huge of a deal which one you go with. Uh, either way, but my preference is to include the whole sentence as the as quoting this slogan, right? And so the slogan would say this: "For food is meant for the stomach. Uh, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other." Close quote. because the point is that some people were using this slogan to excuse their gluttonous self-overindulgence. And also taking the quote to the end of the sentence fits the Corinthians, the culture's point of view there, which really is an expression of a pagan worldview. And that worldview says what? It says, what you do doesn't matter. God will destroy both the stomach and the food at the end of it all anyway. It's what Paul addresses in chapter 15 when he's arguing for the resurrection, recall, in that glorious passage. And he says, uh, what does anything matter if Christ is not raised? And then he quotes this worldview, this pagan worldview. If he's not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that was a pagan point. And it reveals the Corinthians were, abide, were abiding in their former selves, their former worldview, it reveals this worldview, the wrong grounding that ruled the culture of the day. And this indeed was key to Greek thinking, to Corinthian thinking at the time, that the body doesn't really matter. It's the soul that matters. For them, the body is like temporary housing, right? as a friend of mine put it. It's like temporary housing. For them, the body is like a rental car. You're not going to keep it anyway. Who cares, it's temporary. I remember a friend of mine when I was in high school, he was in an accident or something and he, his car was in the shop and he was late to football practice because he had to get uh, a rental car. And we practiced where we did it, there was a, one of the main streets of the city was one, one end of the field. And we were practicing and then we heard suddenly this, this, this awful jerking and skidding noise coming down the street. And we looked at it, it was our friend. Going 45 miles an hour down the street, Pulling the e-brake, right, continually. So he's jerking down the street. It's an amazing sight. (laughs) What did it matter? It wasn't his car, right? What did it matter? It goes without saying, don't do that with a rental car. But that's the view uh, of the body, matter, material things for the Greeks, right? It was Plato, right, the Greek philosopher who said, the body is the prison house of the soul, Stuff it with whatever you want. Enjoy it however you want. Unite it to whatever or whomever you want. It doesn't matter. And as we'll see, this definitely was manifest in living out this worldview that the Corinthians were doing. But it's not true. It's not true. It's not the testimony of our scriptures It's not the declaration of the scriptures. They testify to us about our body something different. The Greeks were wrong. Plato was wrong. The Corinthians said the body which which the soul was trapped in, imprisoned, the body was the source of bodily urges. And therefore the body, they concluded, was the source, the origin of these sinful urges. It can be abused and gratified without damaging the soul at all. The body is not as important as the soul. It's the soul that matters, what they said. And some on the other end of the spectrum were those who denied all pleasure whatsoever. Right, Uh, uh, The ascetics, asceticism. The first error ends in sexual immorality, in gluttonness, in drunkenness. The second error ends in abstinence, denial of even the things that God has given and permitted for joy and for pleasure the good things that God gives us, for pleasure. Both of these are errors. Both are wrong. Neither is biblical. The first error, the the libertines, they said that the soul is the only thing that matters. Enjoy all fleshly pleasures. And the other error, the stoic legalists, said we must deny everything, even the God-given things meant for pleasure, in order to deprive the body. Again, it's called asceticism. Both are wrong. It's a wrong worldview. It's wrong grounding because it's based on wrong worldly wisdom, pagan thinking. We can't mix, as the Corinthians seem to have been doing, falsehood and the truth. Right? We can never, brothers and sisters, mix pagan lies and the truth of God. They do not mix. It's called syncretism, it's a deadly and it's poisonous. Mixing together the religions of the world with the truth of our faith, syncretism, right? Recall the old, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God, in the repetition, this ongoing problem and the warning against this. They're to be separate from the people outside of themselves. They're not to intermix with their religions. We can't mix biblical faith, worldly thinking and practices because the one leads to the other, right? Worldly thinking leads to worldly practices, We are to be set apart, brothers and sisters. And what does God's word tell us? It tells us that the body is important. The body is important. Paul says, Yes, the stomach and food will be destroyed. All the temporal things of this present age, when it gives way to the age to come, the final age, will be done away with. And this is Paul's point in Romans 14, where he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. Our bodies are not temporary housing. They are not like a rental car to be abused. Our bodies will be raised and changed on that final day when the Lord will raise the dead and raise them with imperishable bodies. And we shall be like Jesus with resurrection bodies. Do you suffer in your body... Do you have physical ailments that plague you? Many of us do. This is a truth that you can uh, derive great joy and comfort from, brothers and sisters. Meditate on this truth. Your body will be raised. You will have a new body. And so Paul says it's a false analogy. It's a false analogy between food in the stomach and the body in urges, right, or sexual immorality. It's a false analogy. Hunger and sinful overindulging are not necessarily connected. They're not necessarily connected to one another. And so contrary to Greek Corinthian thinking, bodily urges in and of themselves are not wicked or bad. They're natural and good. Right? It's, it's good and natural to be hungry. Right? You need to feed your body. But that doesn't justify sin. right? Sin is still sin. Hunger is good and natural. Gluttony is sinful. And likewise, our bodies were not made for lust or for immoral gratification. They were made for God, for his honor, for his service, for his glory. And now, unless you're thinking, those dumb, crude Corinthians, those silly Greeks, how primitive could they think like this? Right? We must remember that this thinking didn't go away in the first century. Right? It is alive and kicking even today. Right? We are enculturated from the time that we're born. That it's the physical that matters. The physical is what is uh, is the emphasis, right? It's the emphasis on the physical and the devaluing of the spiritual of the soul is astounding. But how were we created? How does God? How does God's word say that we were created in God's image, right? We're created in His image, and part of that image includes our bodies, right? Material things. There's a connection between the body that dies and the body that rises. Redemption, brothers and sisters, includes the redemption of our bodies, that they will be raised. Paul will state this explicitly at the end of the chapter, verse 20, where he says, Glorify God in your body. The body is important. And us too, brothers and sisters. Our thinking on these things matters. Your trust and belief in what God says is imperative. We cannot blend our culture's grounding, right, their worldview, with our Christian, biblical worldview. They do not mix. Pray that the Lord will reveal our unfaithfulness in these things. And pray that he would lead us to greater fidelity in our thinking and in our practice, in our lives. So this evidence of, of immaturity in Corinth and its consequence, uh, the consequences thereof, they betrayed who they were. And Paul says regarding their bodies in verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. During your personal Bible reading, and you all need to be, should be reading your Bibles on a regular personal basis. When you're reading your Bibles, when you're reading the New Testament, pay attention to this in Paul's writings. It's key, it's central for him uh, the resurrection of the body. Think upon this, brothers and sisters. The resurrection of your bodies, right? Again, we are conditioned to think uh, of, of concrete, physical things and an abstract unreality, right? That's not true. It's not true. Your bodies will be raised, resurrection bodies, right? Isn't that wonderful to think of? I know some of you are young and without, uh, without uh, problem or without pain, but brothers and sisters, uh, youth is fleeting, Right? And the signs and the evidences of sin come with age. And that slice of time when you are beautiful and without pain uh, is limited indeed. So meditate, prepare yourself now. This is a wonderful reality. Think of those, those people in your life, uh, loved ones of yours, who do not have painless existences, who suffer in the body. What an amazing promise from, from Scripture, from God's Word. Doesn't it stir your hearts to meditate upon these things? That God, by his power, raised Christ bodily from the dead? Right? It's not just words on a page. This really happened. And it will happen to you on the last day. But it's not, all, it's not, it's not just that he raised Christ bodily from the dead. Right? That, that power, brothers and sisters, will raise you too. It's incredible. Ephesians 1 verse 19 says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? Right? His power towards us who believe, according to, work, according to the working of his great might, right? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. Right There it is. Or think of Romans chapter 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to what? To your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. That's incredible. Isn't that glorious? That same power, that power for you, dear Christian. And then John six thirty nine, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Your body will be raised up on that day. Praise God and look to that day, brothers and sisters. Give Him praise and glory. And then Paul tells us right here in 1 Corinthians 6.14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And then one last verse. Right. What did the Lord Jesus, our Lord, say Himself in Luke 24? Right, you remember he said, See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. This is the, the, the post, you know, this is after the resurrection. And he sees them, it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Right. Matter matters. God made it, and he will remake it, even our bodies. And then later, Paul will go on in, this, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, and he describes this resurrection body. Dear Christian, is this your hope? Is this your hope, the resurrection of your body? It is your Lord's promise to you. Is it your hope, the resurrection of your body? Do you have an appropriate appreciation for this biblical truth? For your spirit and your body and what you do with it? Plead with the Lord to teach you and to give you clarity and commitment in this matter. For His glory and for your good. The body, your body matters, brothers and sisters. We are neither libertines nor stoics. God will redeem both body and soul. And He will reunite them at the resurrection. Glorious. He will reunite them. Oh, what glory that will be. Reunited, glorified. The end of that order salutis, right? Glorification and reunion with your spirit, the spirit and body. <coughs> we're short on time. Or we're out of time uh, this morning. We'll get to those other three points uh, perhaps next week. As we return to this passage, but for now, brothers and sisters, for now, I plead with you, believe what he has said, trust what he has said, trust him, praise him for what he promises to us, and know that you are indeed, as you belong to Jesus, and you've committed your very life to him, know that the Spirit resides in you, and he will grow you, he will empower you to flee from sexual immorality. He will empower you to glorify God in your bodies. The very things that he's telling us in this passage to do. And the world around us will scream incessantly to the contrary. Though it does. But we, dear Christian, we must flee from the lies of the world and flee to Christ our Savior. The only hope in this life or the next. He has given you life and he will give you a new body forever to live with him. Let us acknowledge this truth. And that we are made for him, yes, both body and soul. And let us flee to him again and again and again for forgiveness and for grace and his spirit to grow us and to move us onward in holiness. So as you come down from this Mount, from mount Zion in corporate worship, when you go back into the world, may you delight, brothers and sisters, in your Savior, knowing that all that needed to be done to secure your redemption has been completed. Everything that needed to be done, it is finished, right? And may you, with renewed passion and commitment, seek to live in accord with this truth and truly glorify God in your bodies for our good and ultimately for His glory. Amen.